So picking up now on what the President has been saying, I'm joined again by our four historians uh, remotely, Eunano Halpins in Dublin, Alvin Jackson in Edinburgh, Marie Coleman in Belfast, Neil Gallagher in Cambridge. Um, there are so many, th and John Horne is still with us, and the President will join in as well. So many threads uh, to pick up on all of this. Alvin Jackson, can I come to you first? I mean, partition itself has been mentioned in so many of the papers, and it's just a century old. Its centenary is coming up. How is that going to be uh, commemorated? That's a challenge, because the Irish border is now back in the news with Brexit. It's suddenly something the British forgot about and didn't want to know about for so long, and now it's bang right on the table again. Well, to state the obvious, there are uh, ferocious challenges uh, with the commemoration, uh, the marking, the revisiting of uh, uh, partition in this its centenary year, and there are others within this conversation who will be as well placed as I to speak to this uh, and who are involved with uh, 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 with uh, the administration of this in, in different ways. I think the essential difficulty, of course, is uh, that uh, the commemorative stimulus comes uh, uh, generally from the state, whether you're talking about the decade of centenaries uh, uh, in the south or this particular centenary in the north and uh, in the north uh, the nature of the state is and was ferociously contested what is to be done in these circumstances um, well uh, the state clearly has to have a role uh, uh, at some level um, but uh, that role, I think, needs to be uh, carefully considered, uh, perhaps in both jurisdictions. Uh, and I think the role might well be about encouraging more of a bottom-up bottom approach to the reconsideration of events in the early 1920s than, uh, than a top-down. And I think as well, uh, uh, we historians have got a, a part to play in all of this through the work that we undertake. But I think as well, uh, uh, there's the work of local history communities as well in, uh, in the north, as well as across the island as a whole, who've got a contribution to make. Marie Coleman, what's your opinion? You're a, a, among the advisors to the Northern Ireland office on this. Is it deeply contested? Is it controversial? Well, yes, it is in that there are there's one community which is just not engaging with it. But I think there's a, a wider community, not just of historians, I should say, but also the arts are quite involved in this and seen as someone has a, have a safer space to for commemoration. And there's a sense among a lot of people that whether that one can park the question of whether or not one agrees with the establishment of Northern Ireland or not and simply accept the fact that it is there and it was established 100 years ago. And if there are going to be commemorative events around it, then it is best to look at it in, in the proper historical context. There are moves similar to what Eunan spoke about in the South regarding the 1926 census to ensure that the fullest range of archival material is made available. Um, so I, I think there's, there's a wide sense of moving beyond the one's view on it 
to accept it as a historical fact and reflect on it from that perspective. Yeah. Niamh Gallagher, what's your opinion on this? Yes, I mean, I agree with Alvin and Marie. I think our roles, myself and Marie, who are on the, um, the historical advisory panel, is an independent role. And that independence of what it can do is crucial to the whole project. Yes, it was set up insofar as we were created by the British government. But in terms of what we ourselves decide to do in relation to helping to mark, to revisit, to think about the creation of the state, that comes down to us and to our expertise. And so I think what we're trying to do is to complicate a very hegemonic picture from one side or the other to show a range of different experiences that happened, uh, of course, from 1923 to 1922, but also over the last 100 years. It's about unfreezing these categories that President Higgins spoke about last time in his first talk in December. It's about opening up questions of agency, behavior, attitudes to, to historical inqu inquiry. And hopefully we're, we're gonna do a, a fair job on that. That's, not, that's a, not an easy job, though, to get each community. I mean, Northern Ireland particularly is a very special case where people tend to see their own history in a particular way. Are commemorations likely, in your view, to open minds rather than to leave people where they are? Well, that's a, that's a, a really interesting question, John, and I think it touches on the differences between history and memory. So people have very strong senses of their own history, which often rely on selective narratives, selective versions of the past. And really it's up to them should they wish to think outside those confines. But in terms of what we are trying to do, we are trying to bring a more, um, more of a richness and the complexity to what actually happened to the public domain. We're not trying to be prescriptive. If, they don't, if people don't want to engage with a more holistic view of the past, I mean, that is up to them. But that's not what our role is. And our role is we are committed to the history. We are committed to thinking about experiences at the time. And we're committed to bringing those to a wider public. Yeah, Yunan O'Halpin, what's your opinion? Well, in, in relation to commemorating partition and the foundation of the Northern State, if I take them together, uh, my view is that certainly in this jurisdiction, the state will do as, as little as possible and stay away as much as possible, and we will encourage, particularly in terms of partition and the border, encourage and facilitate local groups to do ideally on a cross-community basis, on a cross-border basis, and so on. In other words, I, I, I don't sound cynical, but I don't think anybody in, in, in government buildings wishes to anyway stir the pot. And I think that paradoxically, uh, the virus especially, I, mean, I was outside my joy on the 1st of November uh, 2020, uh, the anniversary, the centenary of Kevin Barrick's execution, I, myself and my wife, the only people there because of the virus. And that probably, uh, uh, in some ways, prevented what might have been a scrum of different sort of commemorative groups. I, I do think in some ways that the virus may, may, may in, in the matter of occupying space and so on, and inflammatory or de de speeches and so on, the, the virus may help. But I, I do think the state here, we, we, it's very conscious uh, that there are different perspectives and different takes, uh, particularly along, along the, the border and so on, and doesn't wish to uh, uh, promote anything that's going to uh, cause political upset to anyone, but is, is very willing to support local local history societies and exercises like that, and cross-community especially. And the EU, of course, as well, has been funding a lot of cross-community activities generally uh, and along the border. So I think... Uh, 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 
it's not a matter of the less said the better exactly, but the less that's said by uh, centrally by 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 the government, and not at all. I don't mean by by President Higgins, uh, but by, by by the government uh, in a sense to try to you know claim back a fourth green field or anything like that. The better. You, you yourself have said Thank that the British saw this really as a second order problem, but but then it came bang on their plate in in 1969, and then of course recently under Brexit, it's it's a different contour again. Lloyd George would surely be surprised to think that the bargain he made, the, the fix that he managed to, to deliver in 1920 is still centre stage. Oh, absolutely would be. And, and we forget first, uh, General Smuts, who had been a rebel in South Africa, and the Boers who got terribly treated uh, during the Boer War, uh, suddenly get rehabilitated. They get de-othered, as it were. Uh, to, if, if there is such a term or if I've just coined it. And, uh, but my, my, my argument is that for 21, from the British point of view, Ireland was a second order problem. And secondly, that Ireland was to a considerable extent incorporated into, it, we, we call it the Imperial or the Commonwealth Project, uh, with, with considerable success, even though she joins the League of Nations and so on. She actually uses the other com the Commonwealth dominions a lot as allies in, in international discourse and in discourse with Britain. So I couldn't, I could I don't think you could say that independent Ireland uh, was a, a sort of anti, whether it was anti-imperial, certainly wasn't anti-Commonwealth. And uh, even, you know, in 1949, uh, there's evidence that Mr. de Valera was appalled, not just because uh, he wasn't in government, uh, after the declaration, after the declaration of the Republic, because he would have liked to do that perhaps, but at leaving the Commonwealth, which he saw as, as uh, uh, very difficult, but he found it difficult to oppose in public. Indeed, yeah. Uh, John Horne, what do you th make of, of the whole uh, question now of partition itself in terms of how Brexit has impacted on it and how it has come to the surprise, presumably, of the British cabinet that this border, which they didn't know where it was pretty well, and it wasn't in the Brexit debate at all when the issue was being... But now it's bang, it's now in contention, as it were, again. I know it is. It is extraordinary, and I think at the time during the, uh, the the referendum campaign, the only people in Britain who were really speaking out in a warning way were Tony Blair and John Major, who of course had been instrumental in the Belfast Peace Agreement, saying that this will be called into jeopardy. But I think it was simply off, off the screen, um, uh, even though the warnings were there. And now, of course, it's absolutely centre stage. In a curious way, though, I think it's a, a logical and ironic result of Brexit because Brexit was the opposition to the European Union and then it was really a failure to see the role that the European Union had played, that the single market had played, in effect uh, reducing this border to nothing once the military conflict uh, uh, was over um, in 1998. And so I think it has indeed caught them, um, caught them completely by surprise and what it's thrown back absolutely to the centre it seems to me therefore is the nature of the Union itself because coming in tandem with the uh, challenge from Scotland. It seems to me, a hundred years on, we are back actually to something which Alvin alluded to, and which was the way the Liberal Party in particular at the turn of the 20th century thought of a kind of devolved union, that, that, that Irish home rule might be accompanied by Welsh home rule, by Scottish home rule, and that we therefore, at the moment, have a kind of disintegration of the union 
the British, the U United Kingdom Union, um, uh, uh, which is raised through um, what's been crystallized by the issue of the border in the north. Again, it's an, un an unintended consequence, isn't it? It is, absolutely. But can I just come in, just a, a quick remark. I was fascinated um, on, on, on the question of, of um, partition when it happened and commemoration now, because we have talked about the commemorative aspect in a north-south connection. And I just wanted to ask Marie, I was fascinated by what you said about, was it the, the Clonfin incident in County Longford and the way in which local people there had gone to Britain to seek out the tombs or uh, the traces of the auxiliaries. And coming back to President Higgins' point about the violence uh, in the War of Independence, I wonder whether you think that there is any um, space um, at the moment for some east-west exploration of that. Uh, it seems to me that the commemoration of Balbriggan, the burning of Cork, that the British were simply absent. But is this an opportunity to try to um, uh, 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 engage in some sort of um, uh, commemorative activity, which I think in the Republic, for us, would have the effect of trying to enable us better to understand and demythologize the black and tans, for example. Do you think that there's any possibility of that, or do you think that it's something which, um, uh, again, as Unum was perhaps suggesting, in some regards, the authorities would prefer to let sleeping dogs lie? I think there's two aspects there. The first one you're referring to there is the, the initiative undertaken by, by Maeve Brady herself. And I think what that reflects, and it's something that Mary Daly has spoken about, her expertise looking at how 1916 was commemorated, is the importance of the initiative coming from below and not being imposed from above. So giving local communities the, the power to... or it, facilitating them to set the agenda for commemoration, I think, comes across well there. My honest view with the British side of it, the East-West side, is that uh, there is just a lack of understanding in Britain of what happened in Ireland in 1921. Um, in 2016, most British people seem to have woken up on the 24th of June and realised they had a land border with the European Union nation-state. Most people in the in Great Britain do not seem to even recall the fact that the the Union was changed in 1921 and the Britain lost a quarter of its land mass. So there's just maybe there's a room there for greater engagement and trying to encourage greater in British engagement with the Irish experience. But I just don't think there's enough of an understanding in Britain itself of what happened in Ireland to go as far as what we're suggesting. Would you agree with that, Alvin? Very, very strongly so. I think uh, I think Mary is absolutely correct in terms of the uh, the lack of knowledge of uh, the events in Ireland of the early nineteen twenties, uh, an ignorance which has unfortunately resonated, I think, through the decades. Uh, I recall researching a book a number of years ago, working uh, in the British. Uh, uh, National Archives at Kew. Uh, I recall uh, a letter, I think, from Edward Heath, then British Prime Minister, referring to uh, what he described as the uh, British High Commissioner in Dublin. So this was the British Prime Minister uh, 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 you know, referring to uh, the embassy of his own country as a, as a High Commission. Um, and that, I think, uh, though uh, uh, merely one instance reflects uh, 
reflects, I think, some wider issues. There's a tremendous, um, there's a tremendous self-satisfaction, uh, I think, within um, within Britain, uh, if I may say so, about the historically speaking, this is about the robustness uh, as well as the flexibility of the British Constitution. And I think we've alluded to, to this earlier on. So 1921 is seen uh, as uh, uh, as not uh, not in the terms that Mary has uh, quite reasonably described, but rather as a great victory for the flexibility of that constitution uh, and yet further testimony to the ability of the United Kingdom and the British Empire to bring on board former enemies, whether they be South African Boers, as Yunan has said, or indeed delving further into the 19th century um, insurgent uh, Quebecois uh, uh, within the Canadian context. Uh, so the Canadian constitutions of 1840 and 1867 are seen again as as triumphs of imperial statesmanship, just as 1921 is. But isn't it also the case that, listening to all of your contributions today and Professor Horn, that in some senses each of these um, major points in our history is best thought of as, as bespoke and as unique, that, that sometimes it's not, I mean, partition itself, if one compares the scale of the issue, say, between Ireland and the Indian subcontinent, the scale is so different, the details and the circumstances are so different that they're hard to compare. Alvin? Um, I entirely take the point, and as historians, we fret about these, uh, these methodological issues, such as the nature of historical comparison. But uh, while I entirely uh, accept that there are uh, differences in scale looking at Ireland and and India, or in in other comparative cases, there may be you know there may be as many distinctions uh, and differences as points of comparison. At the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, many many contemporaries made these interlinkages, and the fact of the matter is that the Irish partition had an influence uh, 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 of sorts uh, uh, in terms of. British imperial policy uh, uh, within India, and uh, you know the creator of modern Pakistan, Jinnah, for example, uh, was interested in the Irish partition and interested in the arguments over the partition of Ireland and interested in Carson in terms of uh, the the politics of uh, what was then Britain's Indian Empire and looking ahead to the possibility of a Muslim state. Yeah, but Carson himself, for instance, was dis a disappointed man in his later years because he, he got what he didn't want. Oh, Carson, uh, uh, absolutely so. Carson, uh, uh, Carson, uh, uh, Carson did not want uh, uh, the 1921 treaty. He didn't actually much want the 1920 Government of Ireland Act, though he went along with it. Uh, 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 Carson, uh, Carson uh, in his later years, embraced uh, uh, a full-blooded conservative imperialism, uh, which uh, involved him taking, uh, uh, taking very unprogressive stands on, for example, uh, uh, Indian self-rule in the 1930s. But in terms of Ireland, uh, Carson was fundamentally about uh, an integrationist unionism. Uh, it should be said, I think, as well, that uh, to get back to one of the earlier points you were raising, John, 
Um, he was also interested in the possibility of federalism uh, uh, across uh, uh, the islands of Ireland and Britain. Uh, so he saw that as a way of sustaining some form of uh, modified union relationship. Uh, that is to say, Ireland would have a form of self-government, but so too would Scotland and Wales. Uh, and that would be the new nature of union. And he was prepared to buy into that. Yunan, did I see you attempting to come in there? Yunan, O'Halloran. Uh, sorry, John. No, I was just saying that Juno himself is, is the, the analogy is very interesting with Carson, and and in some ways like Carson, Juno Juno in the end ended up with with a state, in fact, a state in bizarrely in two parts, separated by a thousand miles, with which he, he, in a sense he wasn't really. What Jinnah had been looking for was to defend Muslim interests, either in a, a, an India that remained in a kind of home rule or in an India where, where politics would be so, the constitution would be so organized that Muslim interests would be protected. And if you think, if you look now at how Pakistan is treated in India in terms of othering as the absolute, treated with absolute contempt uh, and referred to with absolute contempt in popular politics, and if you look at how Muslims are, or India's, it, the Hindu narrative in India is now about Mughal oppression, the Mughals being the Muslim uh, rulers and conquerors of, of much of what we now think of as iconic India, the creators of the Taj Mahal and so on. And Indian nationalists, historians and politicians are busy trying to write the Muslims either to blame them and are to write them out of uh, India's sort of pre, pre-British colonial history. Well, one man's partition is another man's liberation, of course. So that, that President uh, Higgins, can I ask you about this othering point? Are you optimistic that we can go through this decade of centenaries with this more constructive approach that you're hoping for? Or isn't there a lot of room for pessimism as well, that people see the history they want to see and they find that it's further embedded by the experience? I think that there are a couple of things. Uh, very much, I very much agree that there's great significance in the movements from below about people who, in fact, actually want to repeople these periods themselves. Because, for example, I, I quoted the case of Eileen Quinn. Uh, Eileen Quinn's grandson uh, has been to see the relatives of the RIC man in Roscommon, who, which had led, whose uh, death had, in fact, led to the movement out from Gort towards, uh, in, in, towards Lady Gregory's estate where that shooting took, took place. These are all very, very important. And I think it illustrates something else as well, uh, that where there is need for care, and that is, what if we were in fact actually seeking to recover uh, lost opportunities uh, and r- missing opportunities rather than in fact investing events? If you, if you decide to load the symbolism on a particular selected event, th- there is a risk involved. Uh, there are opportunities on the, on, in, in the way you do it. I think, for example, the speech of King George, for example, you could see positives in that very much. But also, uh, I think there is a great case for the recovery of the better moments lost. For example, when I was looking at Geoffrey Lewis's Carson, the man, uh, book on Carson, Carson's uh, speech to the Ulster Unionist Colson in Belfast on the 4th of February 1921, where he says, you will be a parliament for the whole community. 
We used to say that we could not trust an Irish Parliament in Dublin to do justice to the Protestant minority. Let us take care that that reproach can no longer be made against your Parliament, and from the outset let them see that the Catholic minority have nothing to fear from a Protestant majority. And there is great scope, in my view, of going back uh, to that discourse which you have heard about the treatment of minorities. Because those who, for example, speak of a union, of what union, but then equally those who are speaking of United Ireland, of what kind of United Ireland, and so forth, if the discourse can move to the point where we are, after all, in entirely new circumstances, but it is actually wrong to say um, that what we have experienced to be in terms of partition and the consequences of partition was delivered as a neat, finished package. Uh, there were those who, from the very beginning, retained hope, for example, that it would be temporary, which I think you could argue from some of the aspects of the King George V speech. You could also argue in relation to Carson's speech in many cases. Well, We've heard, already heard intended about it. intended to be temporary, but of course it, it, it became embedded and, it, it did. and fashioned the two states within Ireland, yes, no, and North that, and South. Uh, yeah. That raises the question, for example, in relation to, I have said it elsewhere, uh, if, if you put yourself... Uh, in, in, in north of the border as it is now, whatever like that, and you, you were seeing, if you like, a new state emerging. Uh, there was a need for uh, an expression of a fundamental commitment uh, in, to issues of conscience. Uh, now, I can't, I don't say that in a very critical way because, after all, Irish nationalism had taken on a particular coloration. Uh, from the, the Catholic emancipation on through the land war. And we will have a further seminar dealing with the impact of land and all of this. And that when we're looking at the land issue, you'll see huge points of commonality between the issues in Ulster and, uh, and, and, and other parts of Ireland. And that's about what I think here you asked the question about the, said, I don't represent the state, I represent the. I, the president running seminars, but the, the, it is very, very important. I do t wish very much that everyone would participate with, with the advisory committee. Uh, it, it, that's so important. It would be very, very, very helpful because it indicates a mind towards which, uh, if you are preparing for the future, you, you must say, well, we don't intend to lock ourselves into the lost opportunities. You could even, I could have equally in the first seminar, uh, speaking about, for example, the 1918 election, a point made in today's paper that a substructure of a state came into existence through the Sinn Féin courts and the gathering of taxes and all of this and of it, you might say that that was a great error too, not be able to respond, to recognise that irrespective of what had happened in 1916, the response to it and then the further increases that took place in the, the, the conscription issue in 18, that at the same time, there was this impetus that had been there for people to run a state in an orderly way. It's easy to say now that going back, if we could put, that one should have, could have responded differently, saved a great deal of lives and tension. But that's no reason for saying why, for example, in envisaging the future, that you must get to points of original thinking uh, rather than, uh, than, than and that's the danger what one has to be careful about the symbolisms you can the idea that you would for example uh, uh, symbolize something that was presented as a process 
but you're going to recall it and commemorate it as a finished event. Uh, that's foolish in my view, but equally it is equally foolish to say uh, that to those who rejected that, in fact, were in fact a, a form of martyrdom which is the exact same as everything ever since. That's equally fallacious in my view. So that's why I was hope, why I'm hoping to call on my six seminars and they will be all together uh, to see it as process. See it as process, very, very much so. And very much I'm open, I have been also as well, uh, I, I have been contacted by, about, there are ways we can cooperate on all of this and down through the levels because one of the things that is in both but it's missing in the but we have my next the, I think that the fourth seminar is on social class and that is perhaps the most important of all for example in relation to the to the pogroms which were mentioned I mentioned in my paper that it wasn't only what about the trade unionists who, uh, who uh, and the protestant workers who were equally excluded from the from the shipyards and uh, what about particularly where everyone is using the phrase Bolshevism and so forth uh, while there are many people who are entirely critical of what has happened uh, to socialism and communism and it's by what happened much later on, this ease with which you can dismiss the dissenting intelligence about matters economic and social as Bolshevist, that was quite common north and south. And um, the brave people, when I look back on my visits to Northern Ireland long, long, many decades ago, uh, was the great achievement of the trade union movement. And John Horne, the, the 1980, we've heard of the 1918 and, and, and conscription and how important that was, and Eunan mentioned that, but... The 1918 election, of course, was a profoundly important use yes. of the... So as a, as a revolution, it brought a, an amazingly important um, signal to the world and to London that the Westminster election was being used to measure the degree of Irish exactly. self-determination. I mean, I, I, exactly that. And I, I mentioned the, the kind of twin... Tr track approach, if you like, a political movement and, uh, and, uh, and, and a military movement. And what I find fascinating and, and, and impressive is the way in which um, electoral politics were used throughout, were stitched throughout the War of Independence, as, as, as Union has um, referred to, but also how, in terms of the gunman and the use of violence, that even within the revolutionary movement, there was that that whole question of civil-military relations, of who was actually in control. Was it Malkahi? Um, uh, was it the, uh, the Doyle Ministries? Was it the locals? And was it the local Sinn Féin clubs? Was it the local volunteers? There's a, there's, there's, there's a complexity there. And what I'm saying is that I think the way in which that issue itself within the, the, the independence and revolutionary process was dealt with, not just as a question of the constitutionalist versus Sinn Féin, um, helps explain the stability and the, um, uh, 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 the permanence of democracy in the new state in the South. President Higgins in his address talked, and I, I, was, you know, I, I, I agree absolutely that if empire is diversity um, and, and hierarchy, that one of the things empires also need is, is ideologies, and ideologies um, which explain those hierarchies and which use them and manipulate them. But it does seem to me it's a dialectical process, and certainly in the Irish case, the, the degree to which British parliamentarianism and the assumptions of parliamentary government are there within Sinn Féin itself and within that process that we're well, talking about. And, uh, 
for and that we, they were indebted to the Irish Parliamentary Party and, and their achievements and, 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 and for Parliament and, and so many others. And then we're back to the point of, of, yeah. of, of John Bruton's observations about the continued influence of that IPP um, uh, 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 legacy within Ireland. They um, were tenant farmers. There's nothing more conservative than a man with 30 acres. And if he got it from the Irish Parliamentary Party, if that was, then that was embedded also as part of the Irish political culture. And, and, and when we come to it, you'll also see the significant distinction between the grazier class and the, and the different layers of, of land holding beneath them. Uh, I, 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 in a curious way, the, the historiography has found dealing with social class to be one of its, it's, it's one of its most significant omissions. Well, I'm very welcome to hear the case for people pushing their, their I experience. Should, I should also add that there were two landslides in 1918 because in those six counties that became Northern Ireland, there were 22, uh, 22 Unionists, probably yes. Irish Unionists, yes. and, 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 and three Sinn Féin and four... And, and the Constitutional Nationalists, who were much stronger in the, in the yeah. North than and they, they were, were the, in the yes. South. But can I just add yeah. to the President's observation that I think that uh, as well as the, um, uh, the, the democratic element and parliamentary element, which is stitched through the revolutionary process, we also have the labour movement and what I would call that, that, that process of, of, of civic protest. Yes. The trade unions, for example, not just the strike against conscription in 1918, but of course the ongoing railway strike um, uh, uh, in, 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 in 1920. Uh, the role, the way in which the Irish Transport and General Workers Union reaches its maximum strength at this stage and yes. in the countryside because it's Absolutely. recruiting it's recruiting the agricultural labourers who are brought into the fold and even though at a political level we know that labour stands back and labour waits it seems to be in a social way during the war of independence labour labour is absolutely yes. one of the participants in that i want to go back to our historians who are remotely joining us on one big issue and many of you have mentioned it ordinary lives uh, too often ignored. Just in the nature of things, commemorations tend to be about big events. Big events are very often spectacular and violent events and great moments. But there's, there's also ordinary lives don't have that moment, if you like, and therefore are not often commemorated. Marie, what's, what's your opinion on all of this and how can it be redressed? I think the ordinary life is what interests people and what it's the hook to get them interested in the wider subject. I'm thinking of Richard Grayson's work on military history from the street, looking at particularly at the nationalists from parts of West Belfast who joined the British Army during the First World War, but also his way of encouraging people to take an ancestor who fought in the war and to, to, to start with the name on the war memorial and to take it from there and maybe find the obituary in the newspaper and work through these sources that way. But the ordinary life is the one that interests most people because we all have an ancestor of some sort. My grandparents got married in November 1921, so I wonder what they must have thought of the... the the way in which the country in which they lived was about to change. And it's it's the end. That's what grabs us. I think if we can look at the ordinary lives, the people we knew, our own ancestors, and take their story, that's the end in understanding the wider picture for many people. Yeah. Niamh Gallagher, you mentioned this as well, that there, there were too many ordinary lives not being celebrated. Celebra celebrate is not the word I'm looking up for, commemorate, um, in the way we're approaching the centenaries. 
Yes. So I think historians tend to be very interested, particularly when it comes to political histories, with, as you mentioned, John, the big histories, big events, parliamentary activities, constitutional questions, um, which are heavily male questions as well at the time. We must recognize that fact. Ordinary histories, I agree with Marie, can be a way into think more, thinking more generally about these big questions, but they can also subvert or challenge these big things as well. So by looking at the agency of what people do, what their attitudes are, what their experiences were, we can actually start to unpick and untangle some of these big concepts. And I think with empire, this is a really good case study of how that can be done. We spent a lot of time talking today, um, understandably so, about violence, about um, imperial forms of repression, all of the really um, horrible stuff of empire that affected so many people across the globe. But Ireland has multiple narratives of its engagement with empire. One huge one was settlement. And, you know, Ireland itself, we all know this, was a country of emigration. And between 1801 and 1921, something like 10 million people left the island. And they went to, as I said in my talk, parts of the empire where they settled, where they retained their Irish identities, which those identities themselves were fairly malleable. And actually, if you look at what an Irish American described as Irishness today, or an Irish Australian, you might find that they're quite different. But the fundamental interesting point is that they retained some notion of Irishness, which they saw was capacious enough to link them to these different communities. So I think um, basically untangling these concepts where we look at ordinary people and what they do and what they did can really yield us to opening up to richer histories, really. Yeah. Yunan, on that point? Well, on the same point about President Higgins, I mentioned creameries, and I'm, I'm glad he did, because when I was young, I read about creameries. I paid no heed to it, because I was interested in ambushes and things. And, and the, the, we need to, to look at, the, through the lives of the wider community, what actually happened at the War of Independence. And it's not just about ambushes and killing. It's about places that appear to be quiet counties, but for example, County Leash, where two out of 11 deaths are drunken policemen carrying out robberies at night and so on. And so the terror is felt and the memory of the terror. And we're often accused, I think, in this state of, of overstating the nature of the War of Independence as compared with how uh, the British dealt with and the Irish, perhaps, in British colours dealt with uh, some, uh, trouble in India and elsewhere, like at Amritsar. But but the memory, uh, the, the cultural memory, the practical, if I just briefly say, my, my county down grandmother, I asked her in the 1970s what it was like at the War of Independence in County Down, because her house was raided a lot, because her brother was a Republican. And she told me a joke so song about a terrible girl called Dora who came along and broke all the plates. So she told me a joke. I, I only learned recently she told her daughter about a feeling she was 15 and 16 of sexual menace because she was being held up not just by soldiers but by young specials whom she knew because she met them on the road every day and they were women in the house because the men cleared out from fear of being arrested and that so there's different memories and so on at the at the, the pro ordinary proletarian level if you like which and the more of them i think we understand the more we'll have a greater understanding of the, of the depths of feeling and the resilience of feeling and of memory right across the different communities in Ireland. Thank you. Alvin Jackson, you're nodding to that, yeah. Just in addition uh, to all of this, uh, you know, I'd say that we, uh, and in terms of uh, the individual and the local and the personal, I think, you know, we really should be celebrating uh, the digitization revolution of the past 20 years and the whole array of 
very individual and local materials that have been made available. Um, the census records, uh, unions mentioned, I think, in passing for 1901 and 1911, made available through the National Archives in Dublin. Absolutely wonderful and in many ways a wonderfully subversive uh, uh, resource. But at, but at the personal and familial level, I know, you know, through having trawled my own uh, family's records through it, um, that the, the kind of the accepted narrative of my own family history uh, just isn't borne out in terms of the documentation and, uh, you know, uh, a wonderfully stimulating set of revelations through that material. But there's so much, so much else besides the, the National Archives in Dublin's uh, uh, digitization of the... Um, First, uh, some First World War records, the the wills uh, left by First World War soldiers. Again, you know, very uh, at one level, very scrappy, uh, very truncated, but my goodness, emotionally charged and wonderfully poignant records of uh, these young soldiers uh, who, for the most part, uh, didn't return uh, from the Western Front. And accessing that sort of material and it being digitally available to the, the entire population turns that, those people into sort of historians, doesn't it? Rather than reading your books. Yes. Yeah. yeah. They can follow uh, on absolutely. and read the books, but it gives them that texture and that <laughs> sense of, of finding something, discovery. Absolutely so. Yeah. Um, just on this general, ordinary, the ordinary people, in the John Horn, in the in the records and in the commemoration, are you optimistic that we can get that in, and that we can do this, as it were, the bottom-up approach? My first answer is uh, uh, yes. When I look at what happened, um, uh, uh, both north and south, I think, in relation to uh, 2016, and particularly the the, the, the area which uh, which Neve is an expert in, um, the First World War, the experiences of the First World War, I'm really struck by the um, uh, uh, by the amount of family history interest. This democratization of the archive that we've been talking about, I think, was absolutely crucial in allowing people. To, to become interested in their own family and, and community um, stories. And, and I think that, um, uh, that was very positive. But, and Yunan has made this point, I think in a way we were pushing at an open door. Because if we were talking about bringing back into the picture the, let's call it generally, the Catholic nationalist soldier, every side could agree. I mean, it was win-win. Um, and I think that, as we've always recognized, the most difficult period of the decade of of, uh, of, of, of uh, centenaries was going to be these few years. And in that sense, I'm, I'm, I'm less optimistic. I mean, I hope it will happen, but that was why I raised the question about you know, British ignorance, because it is a triangular relationship. It's not just North-South. And I think that also one comes across then um, uh, the, 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 the more ideological, and, and um, uh, narratives which both North and South we've had and the importance of unpicking those. Um, the question, again, I think Neve raised it, of, of the ways in which complex experiences at the time became subsequently simplified in people's own memories because of what they'd learned at primary school, North and South, um, because of simplified family narratives which then, as it were, fitted 
the established heroic um, uh, mythifications of history. So actually unpicking those things and finding the framework, finding the space in which one can do that and can allow these more complex issues to emerge, I think is um, not easy. I think there's a huge yes. issue, John, in relation to uh, literature as well, restoring Sean O'Casey's insights to their proper place in the entire canon of it all. It's fascinating that O'Casey has, in fact, all of what we've been discussing, the people who came back maimed from World War One, the, the different views that people held in relation uh, towards the people who had got fragments of, of Marxism and so forth. It's all in O'Casey, but it tells you something to my mind about how O'Casey has, been, has not been given the attention on the island of Ireland that he has got, for example, in relation to the United States, where people were studying the literature of the period. And, and it's of enormous significance, because you could get locked into the idea of an order lost and great chaos created. Uh, but there's an indulgence in that, to my mind, as a literary bias, that uh, I very strongly think that the, the great... The great tragedies and the great plays that O'Casey wrote are of immense importance. And for example, why uh, the rejection even of, of the Silver Tassie? They tell us an enormous amount uh, about what were, if you like, uh, in a way, middle class excluding, excluding attitudes in relation to, to just about everything in terms of experience. The same thing is true in relation to the histories of sexual experience in literature and that which was attributed, as it were, to the dangerous lower class, classes and particularly women. So this, there's a great deal to go forward on if, uh, if we were able to bring all these themes from below and gender, well, e gender in, in, I think. Well, we leave that there, and my thanks to all our thanks indeed to Professor John Horne and to our contributing uh, historians from uh, Edinburgh and Dublin and uh, Cambridge and Belfast. Thank you all, and thanks to the President for the initiative indeed. <laughs>